This is really gross, but dirty trash cans can pose a serious health risk to you and your family. The pungent smell can attract rats and flies, not to mention maggots, both of which can contain dangerous diseases transferable to humans. Your dirty trash can is susceptible to harboring dangerous bacteria. Contact Brandon at Fitz Trash Bin Cleaning today at 440-752-1533 or find them on Facebook. Veteran owned and operated and eco-friendly. Again, call Brandon at 440-752-1533. Redline Radio LLC is proud to partner with Growing Wings Adult Services for the creation of our brand new state-of-the-art production studio. Growing Wings Adult Services has been assisting adults with disabilities in the Northeast Ohio area for the past five years. For more information on how Lisa and the team at Growing Wings can assist your family, you can contact Lisa at 234-334-7547 today. Detroit Auto Parts is the official parts store of Red Line Radio LLC. They have two convenient locations on the east side. You can call 216-531-7373 or on the west side, call 216-398-7373. Mention Red Line Radio and receive 10% off your purchase. It's the official home and auto parts store of Red Line Radio LLC. If you need any custom T-shirts, banners, stickers, anything like that made, then you reach out to Incredible Keepsakes. As Diane always says, cherished moments are made to last forever. You can reach Incredible Keepsakes at 440-242-9648 or check out their website at IncredibleKeepsakes.com. And don't forget to mention that Redline Radio sent you. For all of our programming information, you can check us out on all social media platforms. You can listen to all of our great programming and live 24-hour music on the Redline Radio LLC app. You can find it on the Google Play Store, but you can also check us out at RedlineRadioLLC.com where we are always live. Warning, Money's Crazy Mind contains language that may not be suitable for all listeners. Discretion is advised, but will be completely f- ignored. <laughs>
this bitch. 2007 oh. and forever, you know what I'm saying? You know we had to take a break Dingo last crazy. week. Yeah. The nigga named Spooks. Right. And that nigga I apologize Mr. about that. It was kind of last minute, but... Had some family stuff going on. Had to help take care of that. You know, it's never easy. Never easy when you have to uh, go to a funeral. Um, But I think it's definitely the hardest to go to a funeral when it is for someone who has barely had a chance to live. And, um, you know, my continued just overwhelming support goes out to the Wasco family uh, for their loss. And, um, yeah, you know, it's never something you want to do. And, um, you know, my heart goes out to the entire family, uh, my wife and everyone on that side uh, included. Um It was a horrible thing, and um, you know the world lost a a tremendous human being, and that was so clear by the just sheer insanity that happened uh, during his funeral the past few days. Um, I mean, th- it had to be at least a thousand people showed up for the viewing on Wednesday. And and we're talking about a 17-year-old kid. Uh, You know, there were people from the racing community because he was a a drag racer. He uh, uh, raced drag trucks. Um, And then, you know, football team, wrestling team, you know, just friends, family, everything. I mean, it was insane. And then yesterday during the... uh, the burial ceremony they were saying at least 150 cars were in the profession uh procession i'm sorry and you know i mean i think almost the entire strongsville police force was out there trying to direct traffic to get us from where we needed to be to where we needed to go and just absolutely insane absolutely insane and you know um just resting Rest peacefully now, Jacob. Uh, horrible, horrible tragedy. Um, like my wife said there, you know, rest in peace, Jacob Wasco, um, her cousin, and everything. So, all right. You know, it, it's been a little bit since <clears throat> we've done uh, this next topic here, uh, but we're bringing it back this week. Uh, it, like I've wanted to do something like this, but I haven't heard a story that's been good enough, in my opinion, uh, to do this segment for a few weeks now. But Florida Man is at it again. So, ladies and gentlemen, it is the return of the Florida Man Chronicles. And this time it is brought to you by the people that make these awesome T-shirts right here. Incredible Keepsakes. Money's Crazy Mind is brought to you by Incredible Keepsakes. At Incredible Keepsakes, cherished moments are made to last forever. T-shirts, binders, cups, you name it, Incredible Keepsakes can make it. Reach out to them today at IncredibleKeepsakes.com or 440-242-9648. Don't forget to mention you heard about them on Redline Radio, LLC. 
All right, so here we go. Florida man tries fleeing deputies on a riding lawn mower. Only in Florida. Only in Florida. The Okaloosa County Sheriff's Office said it was trying to serve a warrant on the 40-year-old man and found him on the mower in the backyard. Uh, Florida deputies use a taser to stop a man who tried to avoid arrest by fleeing on a riding lawnmower on Saturday. The Okaloosa Sheriff's Department said it was trying to serve arrest warrants on the 40-year-old man and found him uh, on the mower in the backyard. They shouted at him to stop and get on the ground when he tried to escape on the mower. Deputies chased him on foot before using the taser. When he finally caught, de- when finally caught, deputies found him with a revolver, a handcuff key, a pipe with methamphetamine residue. He is facing charges of grand theft, grand theft of a vehicle, felony criminal mischief, two counts of resisting an officer, possession of a concealed weapon by a convicted felon, carrying a concealed handcuff key. What? Possession of drug paraphernalia and felony failure and other charges. This dude just racked them all up. Man, oh, Shevitz. Man, oh, Shevitz. But what (laughs) I guess I can, all I can say is what do you expect out out of a man in Florida? But. You know, I'm thinking that 99.9% of those charges that they were talking about there are probably the warrants that they were trying to serve them with. I don't think you can rack up that many charges that quickly. I mean, but uh, what's going on, Dave? Trying to flee on a riding lawnmower, you weren't going to get that far, buddy. I'm sorry. I mean, you could try to all you want, but it ain't going to happen. Ain't going to happen. But, you know, once you got hit with the taser, you're probably flopping around. All right, but like I said, you know, last week in a lot of the background stuff that you see here, uh, doing a secret mission for Redline. Ah, okay. Um, But as you can see, you know, the Asylum is playing victim to Vecna's curse. And if you guys don't know what that is, uh, check out the, the final, or not the final season, but these the second to last season of Stranger Things, and you will see exactly why the asylum looks the way it does. But um, so last week, that was actually going to be our main topic of conversation, was going to be the, fi- the this uh, final two episodes of Stranger Things and then do kind of like a a retrospective on the entire season, kind of give my opinion on it, but we'll, we'll save that for another time. But I mean, this, the way that I did this background was just way too cool to let it go to waste. Uh, so the upside down has infected. the Throughout the entire show here. Um, but speaking of Netflix, Leave it to Netflix to put out a documentary that has people so perplexed and wondering just how the hell did some of this stuff happen that it it is the, the been the main topic 
of the internet for about the last few days. So thanks to the Independent, which is a uh, news a news website in the UK, I found this story and said I just have to talk about this and um, talk about this documentary and kind of give my take on what I thought about it and kind of some more information about the people involved in the documentary. So the big problem with Netflix horrific compulsive new film Girl in the Picture. This is a true crime documentary. This true crime documentary isn't empty or pointless like many others in the genre, writes Jesse Thompson, but it still turns us all into creepy voyeurs. Ask your friends if they've seen that the the Netflix documentary Girl in the Picture. If they have, you'll know immediately this is because their faces will wrinkle up and they will appear troubled. One of the most horrific, sickening, frightening things I've ever watched, wrote one person on Twitter. I literally feel sick, wrote another. Strangely, I think these were intended as compliments. In Tellyland, after all, dead women equal great content. Unfortunately, in the United States, yeah. But let me be clear. This is another abject project from Netflix that parades another grotesque story in the name of winning some bored eyeballs. I don't know about that. Like when we start getting into the details of what exactly happened in this in, in this documentary and everything like that, I think you'll see why they may think that. But at the same time, this story had so many twists, turns, false endings, false starts. You're just kind of like, what? Huh? How? Uh, directed by Sky Borgman, who made this similar, similarly disturbing Abducted in Plain Sight. Now, that was another one that kind of just leaves you going, what the fuck did I just watch? Uh, Girl in the Picture unravels the mystery behind the death of a young woman and the kidnapping of her son. Tanya Hughes was the victim of a hit and run in 1990. Except she wasn't really Tanya, and it probably wasn't a hit and run. It turns out she was really Sharon Marshall, and the man who was who the the man who said he was her husband was actually her father. Except she wasn't really Sharon, and the man is not really her father, etc., etc. Viewers can only watch helplessly as the rug is pulled beneath them over and over and over, and the story becomes progressively more harrowing. Borgman's film is, at the very least, a competent example of the genre. It's full of foreboding music and grainy dramatizations of pivotal scenes. At just over an hour and a half, it isn't bloated and indeterminable, Many vital protagonists, those who aren't dead or in jail at least, have agreed to be interviewed and shared moving testimonies about Tanya slash Sharon. Girl in the Picture actually answers the questions it raises. Namely, 
what was Tanya slash Sharon's true identity and what happened to her son, Michael? Too many cynical true crime documentaries have have of late. We have to rewatch that again. Absolutely. Um, used sleights of hand to disguise the fact that they are empty and pointless. Unable to explain the mysteries at their heart. And, crucially for Netflix, a streaming platform shedding subscribers, Girl in the Picture is the kind of prude... I think this is spelled wrong. Prudent viewing that is hard to turn away from. It's also pacey that it begins to feel relentless. All of this, though, is the problem. Make true crime as ethically as you can. Consult the families. Center the victims. Avoid graphic imagery. But the conversation, but the conventions of the true crime genre, from the creepy music to the orchestral pacing, still turn <laughs> as all into passive voyeurs. Again, some misspelling here that should say still turn us all into passive voyeurs. One telling tweet said, I've watched many messed up documentaries, yet Girl in the Picture on Netflix managed to keep me shocked and horrified throughout. Someone replies, same! I've never lost interest for a second. It was unreal. When the aim is to fix people to their screens and make sure they don't move, it feels too much like a game. Towards the end, there is a sense that girl in the picture has been trying to uncover this woman's real identity in service of something greater. It wants to give her back her personhood. That's surely why so many friends and family are here telling us about their pain. But it's undetermined by the edge-of-your-seat thrills that came before. You can't masquerade as activism when really you're clickbait. Quote, this is more than just a true uh, crime story, unquote, someone said at, at one point. But I'm not sure if it is. Not to Netflix, at least. All right. Here's what I have a problem with with that article. Have a lot of true crime documentaries gotten dry and not really answered questions that they've gone in to answer? Yes. Did this one do exactly what it sought out to do? Yes. Now, do I think that it did it all in the, in the interest of clickbait? No, I don't think so. This has been an unsolved crime for decades. And the fact that these filmmakers were able to locate people that were familiarly linked to Tanya slash Sharon slash her real identity, it made it so that they could finally, at last, give peace to not one, not two, but three different families is that not what true crime investigators and police and detectives and what everybody that is obsessed with this genre as much as i am have always sought to do is give a definitive end and a definitive answer to the crime and the story that you are trying to tell 
for once somebody was finally able to do that. I mean, if you think about it, the case of the West Memphis Three, in a lot of people's opinion, is still unsolved. Did Stephen Avery really kill Teresa Halbach? I don't fucking know. Evidence looks like he didn't. But then there's evidence that looks like he did. You've got prosecutors who are sleeping with their fucking clients telling me that he did. You've got defense attorneys who have made it their business to not take cases of anybody who shows a single iota of guilt that are doing scientific experimentation that nobody else in the history of this case has ever wanted to do, sitting there telling me Stephen Avery's a fucking scapegoat. And why? Because there were millions and millions of dollars on the line. That makes sense to me. But here you have the story of a woman who went missing twice because she had three different identities, possibly even more. We don't know. We have her, her husband slash father sitting there telling wide-eyed stories about different times in her life. Then her son goes missing. Her son brother, I guess you could call him, goes missing. And then he winds up dead. And then finally at the end of it, because of all these sites like 30, 33andMe or, you know, whatever the fuck they are, 23andMe, I think, uh, you know, uh, FamilyTree.com and all those different, you know, places where you swab your chin and you can find out who your fucking family is. They were able to get this woman's true and definitive identity and solve not one, not two, but three cases, and probably even more that we may not even know about yet because they probably may not even ran DNA in those cases. So for them to sit there and say that this whole thing was just on the, on the basis of clickbait, I don't think so. I really don't. At least when I was watching it, the beginning of it was very boring, and my wife, I think, can attest to that as well. But by the end of it, we're sitting there. Every time there was a new revelation, it was insane how many like but wait there's more moments there were in this documentary and you never ever ever see that in documentaries as i kill myself trying to imitate chris jericho by the way kudos to chris jericho and fozzy for having their very first gold record in their entire career for judas So let's talk very briefly about the woman that is involved here. Because like I said, she has six different identities. You see the picture of the little girl right there. So her real name is Suzanne Savakis. And she was a young woman who was kidnapped at four by her mother's third husband, Franklin Floyd. He also took her two, her two sisters and one-year-old baby brother, Philip Brandenburg. 
The sisters were left at a children's home, and Philip was located alive after a DNA test confirmed his identity in 2020. Floyd later raised her and eventually married her. Suzanne's son, Michael Hughes, remains missing since 1994. Floyd was also convicted of the murder of Cheryl Camesso. So, and there it is. Yes, it was a very slow start. Let me find my mouse. I buried it underneath the papers I'm about to read. Uh, So, Franklin Delano Floyd married Suzanne's mother sometime in 1975, and they eventually moved from North Carolina to Texas. Suzanne's mother survived a 30-day prison sentence for passing bad checks. Uh, whilst, when Suzanne's mother was released, two of the children were placed in foster care, but Suzanne and her brother, Philip Stephen Brandenburg, were missing, presumably abducted by Frank Floyd. Suzanne's mother attempted to file a missing persons report, but was denied due to the fact that, quote, Brandon Williams, an alias used by Floyd, had rights to take the children as their stepfather. Suzanne's brother was located alive in 2020, confirmed by DNA. So investigators found sexually explicit photos of Suzanne and Floyd's pickup truck, which has led them to believe Suzanne was sexually abused by Frank. There were also photos of another female child who was sexually exploited, as well as 16 other photos of adult females tied up and beaten to death. Suzanne used many aliases throughout her life, such as Suzanne Davis, Sharon Marshall, Tanya Tadlock, and Tanya Hughes. What up, Timbuktu? Uh, Suzanne moved throughout multiple places around the United States with Floyd, including Georgia, Arizona, and Oklahoma. She attended three different high schools in her life from Arizona to Georgia. Suzanne was accepted into the Georgia Institute of Technology. Floyd and Suzanne got married in 1989, and their wedding took place in New Orleans, Louisiana. They both used fake names, Tanya Dawn Tadlock and Clarence Marcus Hughes. Floyd was always claimed to be her biological father, but DNA tests revealed they were not related. Okay, so let's catch a a couple people. uh, Let's... Back that up a little bit. So, you do not know in the documentary that this woman is Suzanne Savakis until the end. Because they start by telling the, the, the story of Sharon Marshall going missing and then Tanya Hughes going missing. And they talk to people that knew these people throughout their entire life. And you hear stories about how I believe it was Tanya was working in a strip club and was one of the most popular girls, but her husband kept butting in and telling her that she had to make do, you know, special dances and provide certain services and things of that nature. And um, when it talks about uh, pictures being found in his truck <clears throat> of another female child who was sexually exploited, Um, one of Sharon's friends actually did talk about that during the documentary and say she, you know, she recalled, uh, him 
forcing them to take these pictures and they didn't think about it at the time but now it kind of all made sense and then another woman remembers seeing the pictures in his truck and that's when he went ballistic on her and kicked her out of the house and made threats and all kinds of other things um so there's not much here about who she was but i was able to find some other information about her and this also goes through some of her aliases um as well so we'll we'll talk about this here so she was born on september 9th 1969 and she was an American entrepreneur in the media face in a media face from North Carolina. According to reports, she was a young woman who was kidnapped by Franklin Delano Floyd. And as per Wikipedia, Franklin is a is an American murderer, rapist, and death row inmate. According to other sources, Floyd kidnapped her as a child, raised her as a daughter. Later, he married her. And the story of Suzanne is very horrible. She died in the year 1990. However, exact death is still a mystery. <clears throat> and uh, uh, her life is very horrible. According to reports, Susan was born to her parents, Sandra Chipman and Cliff Savakis. Uh, a person named uh, Franklin Delano Floyd married her mom in 1975. After marriage, Franklin moved to Dallas, Texas, along with Sandra and her daughter, Suzanne, and three other kids. Uh, due to passing a bad check, her mother received a 30-day prison sentence. When she was released, she found her two kids in foster care, but her daughter Suzanne and son Philip Brandenburg were missing. It was revealed that they were both abducted by Frank. Franklin used different names to hide his identity. Uh, Floyd raised Suzanne as his daughter, later married her. Suzanne and Frank moved to different places, Oklahoma, Georgia, we talked about that both using fake names. Suzanne was in a relationship with Kevin Brown and ran away with him. In the year 1990, she was found dead on the highway outside of Oklahoma City. Later in the investigation, they found sexually explicit photos of Suzanne in Floyd's pickup truck. It was later revealed that uh, Frank sexually abused Suzanne, and the investigators also found 16 other photos of adult women and female children who were sexually exploited. In 2014, Suzanne was positively identified via DNA analysis. After that, Frank got arrested and sentenced to 52 years in prison. According to The Sun, Floyd is on death row, but is yet to disclose the suspicious death of Sharon Marshall, which remains unsolved. And as we now know, Sharon Marshall is one of the aliases that was being used for Suzanne. Um, Suzanne's body was found lying on the side of the highway outside of Oklahoma City. There were groceries scattered around her. Uh, the investigation only surmised that it was a hit-and-run case and that Suzanne died in a vehicle accident. However, the cause of her exact death is still a mystery. She was only 20 years old at the time of her death. Uh, <clears throat> she was a Christian, and her ethnic background is mixed. According to her uh, date of birth, she was 20 years old at the time of her death on April 30th. During her childhood, she was kidnapped, uh, and she completed her education in private schools. 
Um, so her other aliases were Suzanne Davis, Sharon Marshall, Tanya Tadlock, and Tanya Hughes. Nothing there that's important. Um, after doing a lot of research, it was found that Suzanne's father's name is Cliff and her mother's name was Sandra Chapman. Uh, they were the only daughter of these parents. Uh, Suzanne was also in a relationship with her boyfriend, Kevin Brown. She was the mother of three kids. According to the reports, the names of her two kids are, are available on the Internet. Names of her other children are Michael Anthony Hughes and Megan DeFrenci. Now, Megan is actually the one that provided her DNA for them to be able to prove that uh, Sharon Marshall and Tanya Hughes were, in fact, Suzanne Savakis. Um, and then she had another, Michael Anthony Hughes was kidnapped and murdered by Floyd as well. Um, according to a lot of the reports, she worked at a strip club. Before her death, her co-worker from a strip club told her she should leave Floyd to avoid being killed. Uh, there is no proper information available about her exact profession. Uh, so she used different names. We talked about that. In 2004, author Matt Birkbeck published a book entitled A Beautiful Child, which is based on uh, Suzanne's life. Nothing else of interest here. Yep, nothing else. All right, so let's talk a little bit about what we... No, here. So not a lot of information is obviously known about this woman because of the fact that she was kidnapped when she was a very little girl. This man pretended to be her father. And then in 1989, he married her. How that was... Now, uh, it, it turns out that the way that he was able to make this happen and, and was able to get away with... Mi marrying her obviously a she is not a blood relative to him b they would go to cemeteries and write down names on tombstones and then would then use those names to be able to change their identity and you know he probably knew people in the criminal underground world and was able to you know make those things happen probably got fake social security numbers fake you know birth certificates fake whatever so, uh, da, 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 run off with her child. Uh, at the time, Suzanne had a secret relationship with Kevin Brown, who was the father of her son, Michael Hughes. The two eventually ran away with Michael. Later that month, three people found Suzanne's body laying on the side of the highway outside of Oklahoma City. There was a large hematoma at the base of her skull. Groceries were scattered around, around her, which led authorities to believe she was grocery shopping and then pushed when she was attempting to get to the Motel 6. Authorities investigating only surmised that it was a hit and run, but it was never confirmed that Floyd is the prime suspect in her death. Uh, Suzanne was positively identified in 2014 through DNA analysis. Kevin Brown stated that he would take custody of Michael if he was found alive. Sadly, it is believed that Michael Hughes is deceased and was murdered by Frank. 
Frank Floyd uh, remains on death row. Suzanne's death and her child's disappearance remain unsolved. So, you know, this documentary was crazy weird. And it's kind of hard to unpack everything that was being said during this thing. Because, you know, and like, you know, my wife stated, it was a very slow start. But once you get into the meat and potatoes of this thing, it takes off in a crazy, crazy way. And you, at that point, don't want to turn away because you're not even sure what you're looking at half the time. Like, is this a story about Sharon? Is this a story about Tanya? Is this a story about the guy that took them? Is this a story about this person? You know, and it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy the way that they did this. Because it starts out talking about the guy, uh, Franklin Delano Floyd. It starts talking about him and the aliases that he had. But then it starts to turn into talking about Sharon. And then it turns again, talking about Tanya. Then it turns again, talking about him again and how he was able to walk into the school that that uh, Sharon, Tanya, Suzanne's son went to, was able to just grab him and walk the fuck out of the school. And it's just like, well, what the fuck? You know, and obviously we're talking about the 80s and, and you know, the, the late 80s, early 90s. So things obviously didn't work the way that they work now when it comes to that kind of stuff. And it's probably situations like this one with Frank that caused a lot of that to happen. And the, the other crazy thing is, is that nobody knew who these people really were. They just automatically assumed that that's who it was. They had no reason to think otherwise. And I think that that's what made this documentary so intriguing for the most part is you, you get drawn in because you don't know whose story is actually being told. What's up, Dave? Um, you don't know whose story is actually being told until you get to the end of this documentary. And I think that that was a very telling part of it, a very telling part of it. And what keeps people captivated and what made people start to think, you know, what the hell is actually going on here? And, you know, what's, what's the story behind all of this? Very very, very interesting uh, story that was being told there. So we talked a little bit about how uh, Suzanne slash Sharon slash Tanya, I want a shirt. Well, Dave, if you want a Money's Crazy Mind shirt, just let me know, and I will get in touch with the people that make those shirts. And just in case you forgot, after we did Florida Man Chronicles, you can get all your t-shirt needs, all your cup needs, like this one right here, this Redline Radio one. It's got my name on it. It does. Or if you just want a uh, Redline Radio t-shirt. Or let's say you want a Redline Radio mouse pad. 
or any other kind of item that you can possibly think of, you can get those exclusively at Money's Crazy Mind is brought to you by Incredible Keepsakes. At Incredible Keepsakes, cherished moments are made to last forever. T-shirts, binders, cups, you name it, Incredible Keepsakes can make it. Reach out to them today at IncredibleKeepsakes.com or 440-242-9648. Don't forget to mention, you heard about them on Redline Radio, LLC. And in case anybody is interested in getting a Money's Crazy Mind t-shirt, we do have two designs available. All you got to do is just reach out to Money's Crazy Mind podcast on Facebook. Just remember that the S is a dollar sign. Tell me if you want the black shirt that says Welcome to the Asylum or the red shirt that says Nurse Ratchet's favorite psycho. And I will reach out to my people over at Incredible Keepsakes and we will get those shirts made for everyone i'll tell you where to send the money and all of that and we will get them made as quickly as possible all right uh no crazy shit you find on the internet this week but as always as always you know uh we are hugely thankful to all of our great sponsors here and obviously i'm a huge fan of riley and everything that tattoo therapy inc does for everybody they have a really cool raffle going on right now where the winner can win a hundred and fifty dollar all day session gift card for services so if you want to get a hold of riley and you want to get a hold of tattoo therapy inc on how you can join that raffle for that gift card Here's how you can do that. Money's Crazy Mind and Redline Radio LLC is proudly sponsored by Tattoo Therapy, Inc. In the Greenbrier Shopping Center at 6259 Pearl Road, Parma Heights, Ohio. You can contact Riley today at 440-747-7130. They are one of the premier tattoo parlors in Northeast Ohio. And don't forget to tell them. That red line radio sent you. All right. Let's get back into it here. And, you know, we do have a brand new sponsor here. We'll talk about them after the break. But let's talk about the scumbag of the day here. And that is Franklin Delano Floyd. He's an American murderer, rapist, and death row inmate. He was convicted. <clears throat> in the 1989 mur- murder of Cheryl Ann Camesso, as well as the kidnapping of six-year-old Michael Anthony Hughes, who he claimed was his son from his elementary school in Chacao, in Choctaw, Oklahoma. Floyd is also considered to be a purchase of person of interest in the 1990 hit-and-run death of his second wife, Sharon Marshall, who was the mother of Michael Anthony Hughes. It was later discovered that before becoming his wife, Sharon had been raised by Floyd from an early age as his daughter and was herself kidnapped by Floyd as a child. Marshall's true identity remained a mystery until 2014 when she was positively identified as Suzanne Marie Savakis, the daughter of a woman whom Floyd had briefly married. 
and disappeared with Savakis, her two sisters, and infant brother Philip, also known as Stevie, while her mother was serving a 30-day jail sentence in 1975. Savakis' brother remained missing until 2019 when a man came forward believing he was Philip, and DNA test was able to confirm that in 2020. Scumbag was born in Barnesville, Georgia. He was the youngest of five children born to Thomas and Della Floyd. Shortly after Floyd's first birthday in 1944, his father, a cotton mill worker and alcoholic, died from kidney and liver failure at the age of 32. Gee, I wonder what caused his kidney and liver failure. He was an alcoholic. I think that pretty much solves that mystery. What do you think? His mother, a widow at the age of 29, struggled to make a living on her own, so she and her children lived with her parents in a small apartment. Over the next year, caring for the large family became too difficult for Floyd's grandparents, and by 1946, they asked Della and her children to get the fuck out. Floyd and his siblings were put into the care of the Georgia Baptist Children's Home in Hapeville at the advice of Lamar County Children's Services. There, Floyd was allegedly bullied by other children for being feminine and later reported to have been sodomized with a broomstick when he was six years old. In his own words, he states that he was digitally penetrated in the anus by other boys in the home. He was also subjected to harsh punishments by the staff. As a teenager, his hands were dipped into hot water after he was caught masturbating. Floyd often got in trouble for fighting and stealing, and as each sibling reached the age of 18, they left the home. In 1959, having been there two years after his youngest sister left, Floyd ran away and broke into a nearby house to steal food. The children's home informed his sister, Dorothy, who was now married and living in North Carolina with two children, that criminal charges would not be pursued if they took custody of him. After being kicked out of his sister's home, Floyd traveled to Indianapolis to search for his mother, only to learn she had become a prostitute. Floyd had Della help him forge legal documents, allowing him to go to California to enlist in the Army. However, the Army discharged Floyd after six months into service, discovering that he was underage and that his papers were falsified. After being unable to find his mother again, Floyd traveled across the country as a drifter. Della died on July 2nd, 1968, and is buried in Graceland Cemetery in Chicago, Illinois. Okay, so let's run through the mountain of stuff that turned Floyd into a scumbag. So, father died at 32 because he's an alcoholic. Mother was a widow and was forced to move in with her parents. Said parents kicked them out. He then grew up in a foster home. He was raped and beaten when he was in the foster home. Are we sensing a pattern here, ladies and gentlemen? 
He then left the foster home without their permission. Broke into a house and stole shit. Then moved in with his sister and got kicked out of that house. Found his mom who became a whore. Tried to go to the army and the army kicked him out because they found out he was a minor because his mom falsified documentation for him. These are all things that psychiatrically have been proven to prove that they can cause psychopaths. So it's not shocking that Franklin Delano Floyd became the criminal that he became and did the things that he did. So before any of this stuff that caused the documentary Girl in the Picture happened, let's hear what Frank was up to before he started kidnapping children. In 1960, at the age of 16, Floyd broke into a Sears department store in Inglewood, California to steal a gun. Police quickly responded to the burglar alarm, resulting in a shootout in which Floyd was shot in the stomach. He survived following emergency surgery. After recovering, he was sent to a youth institute for a year. In 1961, he was arrested for violating parole by going on a fishing trip in Canada with a friend. In May of 1962, Floyd returned to Hapeville and found a job at an Atlanta International Airport. The following month, he abducted a four-year-old from a local bowling alley and sexually assaulted her in the nearby woods. A four-year-old, ladies and gentlemen. Floyd was convicted of kidnapping and child molestation and was sentenced to serve 10 to 20 years at the Georgia State Prison in Reedsville. That November, he was moved to uh, Milledville, Milledgeville State Hospital for psychiatric testing. Gee, that apparently went wrong. Denied. While being taken out for a medical errand in 1963, Floyd escaped and fled to Macon, Georgia, where he robbed over $6,000 from a branch of the Citizens and Southern National Bank. He was convicted of the robbery and was sentenced to the Federal Reformatory in Chillicothe, Ohio. Why did you have to bring this piece of shit to my neck of the woods? After a second escape attempt, he was transferred to the United States Penitentiary in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. There, he was continually raped by other inmates, causing him to climb a roof at the prison and 13... Sorry, and threaten where the fuck was, uh, to commit suicide at one point. After being sent to the federal penitentiary in Marion, Illinois, Frank uh, Floyd was sent back to the Georgia State Prison in 1968 and befriended a fellow inmate by the name of David Dial. In November of 1972, Floyd was released from prison and sent to a halfway house. On January 27th, 1973, a week after he was released from the halfway house, he approached a woman at a gas station and managed to escape in her uh, and forced her into her car where he attempted to grope and sexually assault her. The woman managed to escape and Floyd was arrested. Floyd convinced Dial, who had also been released from prison, to post his bond. 
allowing him to go on the run as a fugitive. When he failed to show up for court on June 11, 1973, a warrant was issued for his arrest. By 1974, he was using the name, uh, alias of Brandon Williams. While at a North Carolina truck stop, he met Sandra Francis Brandenburg. She was the mother of four children by two different fathers. <laughs> uh, Suzanne Marie Savakis from her first husband, Clifford Ray Savakis, and Allison, Amy, and Philip, nicknamed Stevie, Brandenburg from her second husband. Floyd and Brandenburg dated for a month and married, and Floyd convinced Brandenburg to move the family to Dallas, Texas. Brandenburg was sentenced to 30 days in jail for passing bad checks in 1975. While she served her time, she left her children in the custody of Floyd. Wow, that was a big mistake. After she was released, she arrived home to find the residence vacated and her husband and children gone. Brandenburg eventually found her two middle daughters, Allison and Amy, in the care of a local church-operated social services group. She never found her oldest child, Suzanne, or her youngest child, Philip. Chipman attempted to file kidnapping charges, but was told by local authorities that as their stepfather, Floyd had a right to take the children. The boy's whereabouts remained unknown until 2019 when a man came forward believing he was Philip. DNA tests confirmed his identity. According to his older, his oldest, older sister, Allison, their mother had first claimed that Philip was dead. She later learned from social services that he was alive and had been privately adopted in North Carolina shortly after he was born. Sandra is now known as Sandra Willett. All right, we are getting to the point to where scumbag starts getting into crimes that we know are being featured in the documentary. So let's talk about everything that we heard here. So obviously this dude is just a career fucking scumbag, as we mentioned. So let's think about this here. Let's just look at everything that he that he did. He broke into a Sears department store and stole a gun and got into a shootout with police. And he was a, uh, arrested for violating parole and going on a fishing trip in Canada with a friend. So not only does this guy like being arrested, he likes escaping prison from jail. In 1962, he returned to Hapeville and found a job at Atlanta International Airport. He abducted a four-year-old from a bowling alley and sexually assaulted her in the nearby woods. So obviously, he's had these plans for a while. And I think that getting into the relationship with Sandra Brandenburg, um, who turned out to be Suzanne's mother and her going to jail kind of just led credence for him to be able to get away with what he was going to get away with. So then after that, he was uh, convicted of kidnapping and child molestation and was sentenced to 10 to 20 years at the Georgia state pen in Reedville. And then he was moved to Mil uh, Milledgeville state hospital for psychiatric testing in 63, he escaped and fled to Macon, Georgia, where he robbed $600 from a citizen's bank, was convicted of robbery and sentenced to the Federal Reformatory in Chillicothe, Ohio, and after he uh, escaped from there, he was transferred to the U.S. Penitentiary in Louisville, Pennsylvania, 
and he, they claimed he was raped by other inmates, uh, causing him to climb on the roof and threaten to commit suicide, and then being sent to Marion, Illinois, in a fed, federal pen. And he was sent back to the Georgia State Prison in 1968 and became friends with David Dial. Uh, he was released from prison in 672, sent to a halfway house. In 73, a week after he was released, he approached a woman at a gas station and attempted to grope and assault her. She escaped and got Floyd arrested again. He convinced Dial, who had also been released from prison, to post his bond, and then he ran away again. When he failed to show for court on June 11th, Another warrant was issued for his arrest. And then in 1974, using the alias of Brandon Williams, he befriended Sandra Brandenburg, married her, and then took off with all four of her kids, putting two of them in foster care. Another one we find out was privately adopted, and the other one goes missing for a very long time. So when we get back, we're going to go to break here. I still need this page. When we get back here, we are going to talk about everything that happened during those years and everything that we know that happened during those years. And we'll also talk about the death, her death, the death of her son, and everything else that Scumbag did during that time. All right, the music for break this week. We're going to keep it with Big Ugly. This one is entitled Expendable.
that sounds really great. Wow, that sounds like a really good deal. Who are you talking to? Uh, the Northeast Ohio Ghostbusters. Hello, Northeast Ohio Ghostbusters. What are you wearing? Uh, khakis? Well, that sounds hideous. Well, they're Ghostbusters. Redline Radio is proud to partner with Growing Wings Adult Services, the proud sponsor of our state-of-the-art production studio. The team at Growing Wings has over seven years' experience of helping adults with disabilities in the Northeast Ohio area. If Lisa Summers and the team at Growing Wings can help your family, contact them at 234-334-7547 today. And mention that you heard all about Growing Wings right here on Redline Radio, LLC. Okay, we are back. 2007 and forever, you know what I'm saying? Hour two. Debo Crazy, yeah. the nigga named Spooks, right. and that nigga Mr. C. Want to give a huge shout out to my guys over in the Northeast Ohio Ghostbusters. What a fun commercial that they put together. And that was done years before I was even in the group. Welcome back into the asylum. Vecna is still taking over everything. Damn you, Vecna, for taking over Nurse Ratchet's asylum. But Vecna's taking over the entire city of Hawkins. We will get into that later next week, possibly. So before we get back into the story of the girl in the picture here, uh, Trey Stone and Matt Parker have got to be two of the funniest men to ever work in television. You know, for years I thought South Park was getting stale and that they had they were just getting into some really bizarre shit. Then they get into this deal where they have to do these made-for-TV style hour-long movies for Paramount Plus. And I have a feeling that there was probably a similar deal that they were supposed to do with probably either Comedy Central or possibly even HBO Max because you can watch all of the uncut episodes of South Park on HBO Max. And I'm thinking that some of these specials were probably going to be part of that because they did the pandemic special and um, the vaccination special for... Comedy Central and HBO Max, and then all of a sudden this deal came in with Paramount Plus. And the Streaming Wars came out, I want to say probably about a month or so ago, and I didn't think it was all that great. And I had no idea that Streaming Wars Part 2 was coming out, and then all of a sudden I see an advertisement for it on Wednesday. And after... I left here when I was getting ready to go to the funeral. I'm like, I got to check this out. So I watched it, and it has to be some of the most dead-on television I have ever watched. They love making fun of the fact that there are 900.5 million streaming services in the world right now. And... Like I said, the original Streaming Wars was not all that funny, or at least I didn't think it was. 
and the question on what was going to happen with Cartman's breast implants was answered. So now that they're going to be going into season 26, 25, 26 of South Park, we now know that Cartman will not have big-ass floppy titties in that. So if you guys want to know what happened to Cartman's titties, check out Streaming Wars Part 2 on Paramount Plus. It is so worth the watch. It is so funny. And it, it was amazingly well done. And a lot of the questions that were left answered and just like, why would you leave this here and all of that? I mean, it even gets into a little bit of the Johnny Depp trial and everything. It is just fantastic and so well done. Kudos to Matt and Trey for that. So let's get back into it here. So if you guys are just joining the show, we're talking about the Netflix documentary that came out um, at the beginning of the month, right after the 4th of July, Girl in the Picture. Her identity was a mystery to everyone, even her. So let's get you up to speed before we get back into it here. So this girl disappears when she's a little girl. Nobody knew what happened to her, not even her mother. The police said her stepfather has her who has the right to the children. Now I think... Well, I mean, we're also talking the 70s here, and that might have something to do with it, because I think even today, a stepfather, unless they sign some kind of custody agreement, does not have the right to his stepchildren anymore. Um, Unless, like I said, there's some kind of custody thing there. Um, So she had no idea what happened to her. In 1990, this woman ends up dead the police think it's a hit and run um her husband they find even though they find all kinds of crazy shit in her husband's truck uh photographs of her when she was younger in sexually compromising positions another unidentified 16 year old girl uh who actually does kind of come forward in the documentary and then a bunch of photographs of women that were raped and beaten to death we're also found in this car. So there's a lot of unanswered and unsolved crimes involving this guy. Still to this day, this guy is remaining very, very quiet. So before we went to break, we kind of gave the little bit of information that we had on this woman. So we'll go over that just real, real quick here again. She was born under the name of Suzanne Savakis. Uh, On September 9th, 1969, she was kidnapped by her at four years old by her mother's third husband, Franklin Floyd. He also took her two sisters and one-year-old baby brother. The sisters were left at a children's home, and Philip was located alive in 2020 after DNA testing confirmed his identity. Floyd later raised her and then eventually married her. Her son, Michael Hughes, remains missing since 1994, and Floyd was also convicted of the murder of Cheryl Camesso. So in 1975, Floyd married her mother. They moved from North Carolina to Texas. 
Susan's mother received a 30-day prison sentence for passing bad checks. Uh, after she got released, she discovered that her two chil- that her children were missing and her house was vacated. Um, she was able to find out that two of, of the daughters were placed in foster care and that her, uh, her son uh, was missing, presumably abducted by Frank. She attempted to file the missing persons report, was but denied due to... Uh, due to the fact that Brandon Williams, an alias that was being used by Floyd, had the right to take the children as their stepfather. Susan's brother was located alive. And we mentioned that. Um, so she moved multiple places around the United States with Floyd, including Georgia, Arizona, and Oklahoma, attended three different high schools from Arizona to Georgia, and she was also accepted to the Georgia Institute of Technology. And that actually came up in the documentary where she wanted to be an engineer. She wanted to go to school for engineering. And when she got accepted, all of her friends were really excited for her. And then it came out that she's not going to be able to go because her father said that she he wasn't going to let her. And, you know, then she had a kid, presumably with him. And, you know, things just kind of went off the rails from there. Uh, he married her in 1989. Their wedding took place in New Orleans, Louisiana, both using fake names, Tanya Dawn Tadlock and Clarence Marcus Hughes. Floyd always claimed to be her biological father, but DNA tests perf- uh, revealed that that was a lie. So... Right when we went to break, it was, we were going to get into uh, Floyd's version of the story here of what happened to uh, Suzanne, Sharon, Tanya, all the same person. Before we get into that, the friends of this woman that they interviewed in this documentary, obviously they knew three different women. You know, nobody knew her as Suzanne because she disappeared when she was four. But I think there might have been a third alias that they just never was able to get the name from, or maybe just because she used different nick, you know, last names because she had the Tadlock and then she also had Hughes. So I'm thinking that maybe people thought that this was a completely different person. But throughout the entire documentary, you know, which is why the name of the film was "The Girl in the Picture." is each one of these people were just like, I know her, I grew up with her, I knew her as this person, I knew her as that person. So even though nobody knew what this woman was going through, and I thought that the story of Steven Stainer had to be one of the strangest stories I ever heard in my life until I saw this thing on Netflix. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, my God, you know, how crazy was the world back during this time that people could literally just abduct children like this and nobody could do anything about it? It literally made zero sense to me at the time. But now looking back on everything that I know about true crime and everything that I've seen in true crime since then, 
it all makes sense. It all makes sense that this would happen because, you know, back then people weren't looking or I don't think anybody could could potentially know that criminals were that sophisticated back then to where they would change these people's appearances, change their names, do this, do that in order to avoid detection. We saw it in the case of Steven Stainer. Now we're seeing it in this person's case. So let's get into what happened to Suzanne after she's in the custody of Frank. Uh, he raised Suzanne Savakis as his daughter. Uh, given a number, he's given a number of inconsistent statements regarding how she became to be in his custody. One such story was that he rescued Savakis when she was abandoned by her biological parents. The earliest known record of Savakis after she was kidnapped was her elementary school registration in Oklahoma City in 1975. She was registered under the alias of Suzanne Davis. Authorities suspected that she was born in the late 60s and kidnapped by Floyd sometime between 73 and 75. We now know that to be true. Suzanne, now living under the name of Sharon Marshall, graduated from high school in Forest Park, Georgia in 1986. Floyd was now living as Warren Marshall. Sharon earned a full scholarship to the Georgia Institute of Technology to to study aerospace engineering. Unfortunately, as she told a friend, she was pregnant and her father, Warren, would not allow her to go to college. She and Warren instead moved to Tampa after she gave birth to a child in 1988 who was then placed up uh, for adoption. Sharon began working as an exotic dancer and then married Floyd in 1989 in New Orleans. By then, the two had begun using the aliases of as Clarence Marcus Hughes and Tanya Dawn Taddock. It was discovered later, uh, years later that Sharon had given birth to a daughter while living in New Orleans, and the daughter was given up for adoption. Her name is Megan. By 1989, Floyd and Suzanne, now going by Tanya Dawn Hughes, were living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tanya worked as a dancer at a strip club. And a fiddle dancer, Karen Parsley, encouraged Tanya to leave the domineering Floyd, only for Tanya to claim that he would kill her and her son if she tried. Floyd had joined the Fraternal Order of Police, despite not being a police officer, and told Tanya that he could use his connections to track her down. However, by April 1990, Tanya decided to run away with Kevin Brown, a college student she was having a secret relationship with, and take Michael with her. That month, three passerbys found Hughes lying on the side of a highway 100 miles outside of Oklahoma City. She was rushed to the Presbyterian Hospital in Oklahoma City with severe bruises and a large hematoma at the base of her skull, and she subsequently died. As she was hospitalized, uh, as she was found with groceries scattered around her, police surmised she had been struck from behind in a hit and run while walking from a convenience store to a nearby Motel 6. 
When Floyd arrived at the hospital the following day, he claimed he had fallen asleep at the motel after Hughes had departed to collect the groceries. Both Floyd and Hughes went by a number of aliases, and at the time of her death, the couple were suspects in the 1989 disappearance of 18-year-old Cheryl Ann Camesso, a former co-worker of Hughes who danced at the same strip club. Camesso had disappeared following an angry confrontation with Floyd. Floyd was considered as the lead suspect in his wife's death as well. So, given Floyd's past, I, it would not surprise me if he didn't mur- murder Cheryl Ann Camesso. And given the fact that Tanya, which is the name she was using at the time of her death, had told Karen uh, Parsley at the club that if she were to leave Floyd, that he would kill her and her son, it would make sense that she would be afraid to leave him. Now, the fact that she was having a secret affair with a college friend, um, I don't know if that was ever brought up in the documentary or not. I can't remember if it was. I don't. I want to say it wasn't. And I'm trying. And the reason why I think it probably wasn't is because she probably wouldn't have told anybody that, you know, because if this dude had found out, you know, it probably would have been a lot worse for her than it really was. Um, but I'm thinking a lot of that, a lot of this, and the way that Floyd was acting, and then, you know, the fact that she wound up dead, um, it probably has a lot to do with the fact that if she ever did run away, that maybe she would remember him taking her when she was four years old. And, you know, that could mean bad juju all over the place for this guy. It really could. Um, you know, so... The crazy thing is that she went by some, and like I said, I knew that there was another alias, and it was Suzanne Davis. So they basically just changed her last name, you know. And that was something that uh, they had done with um, Steven Stainer for a little bit as well, until they came up with the name that was being used for him. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. Um, you know, unfortunately, this situation kind of ended a lot differently than it did for Steven Stainer. Um, you know, but he basically lived up to his promise here, you know, that if he, if he ever, if she ever left him, that she would wind up dead. And so would her kid. So following Suzanne's death, Floyd put her son, Michael into foster care and left the state. Michael's foster parents told authorities that the boy had limited muscle control, was nonverbal and often experienced hysterical behavior when he first arrived but he had made remarkable progress. In 1994, they began adoption proceedings. Six months after Michael was placed in foster care, Floyd was arrested on a parole violation. As part of the adoption process, Michael's DNA was compared to Floyd's to establish paternity. It was discovered at the time that Floyd was not Michael's biological father. And when Floyd was released from jail, he attempted to regain custody of Michael. 
on the basis of his criminal record and the discovery that he had no biological relation, his request was denied. So, by this point, they had already come a really long way from when Sharon, or Suzanne, went missing when she was a kid. So now, Floyd has discovered that potentially Sharon, Tanya, Suzanne was having an affair and got pregnant by somebody else. We know that he was sexually assaulting her when she was a child, so there's no reason to think that he wasn't sexually assaulting her when she was an adult, especially since he never got rid of her. Which, I don't know. The, the, this There's so many similarities to the Stephen Stainer story here, which is another reason why I wanted to cover this, is because of the similarities to the Steve, Stephen Stainer story that, you know, it's just strange that he would keep her as long as he did. But then you got to look back to Ariel Castro and everything that Ariel Castro did with, you know, uh, Gina, Amanda, and and Michelle Lilly, as she's now referred to, um, and, and all of that as well. I mean, he never got rid of any of them either, even after he got Gina, even after he got... Amanda and a lot of people think that the person he was going after was Amanda, but you know now it, it's coming out that maybe he was going after Gina instead of Amanda. I mean, there there are so many unanswered questions to that. Unfortunately, the girls are no longer speaking about the incident and no longer want to speak about the incident. And I don't blame them. You know, I mean, they told that story. You know, when they when they were freed and everything like that, let it go. But I'm kind of curious to find out if this Kevin Brown guy that she was having an affair with didn't turn out to be the biological father of Michael. Um, if they can still test that DNA, I don't know if they would keep it. Um, but by 94, they'd already said, you know, no familial ties, no kid. You know, so kudos to them for that. You know, so, uh, you know, when he tried readopting the kid, they basically told him, Denied. You know, because you're a fucking scumbag and a criminal. On September 12th, 1994, Michael's in the first grade at Indiana Meridian Elementary School in Choctaw, Oklahoma. Floyd walked into the school and forced Principal James Davis at gunpoint to take him to Michael's classroom. Floyd then forced Michael and Davis into his pickup truck. Floyd forced Davis out of the truck in a wooded area, handcuffed him to a tree, and sped off with Michael. The principal survived the abduction and was rescued. None of that was in the documentary, ladies and gentlemen. So that's a crazy thing for me. Such a sad story. Yes, Autumn, this, this is the craziest story I have ever seen in my life, which is why I wanted to talk about it. Um, I did spend quite a few days... In uh, down at Growing Wings this past week as well. Uh, the continued amazing work that those guys are doing down there is amazing. The girl's mom is weird as fuck. Yeah, she kind of was, but, I mean, at the same time, I mean, her daughter disappeared when she was four years old. You know, and she she did she fight to get her back? Somewhat. But, I mean, you have to think, back in 1975 a lot of the laws that would protect children from something like this happening didn't exist. And I think that that's kind of where it is. Because, I mean, even in this, when you're talking just about this guy, this scumbag, you know, it, it was in there as well. 
that the police told them that as their stepfather, he had the right to take the children. So I'm thinking that, you know, after, especially after the Stephen Stainer incident, and then I'm sure after a few other incidences, they decided that, you know what, we need to protect these kids because who knows what's going to happen when these kids go off with somebody like that. And, you know, in the Stephen Stainer case, that fucking scumbag was pretending to be his father as well. You know, so this this is not shocking to me. But the fact that, and Autumn, correct me if I'm wrong, but the fact that he broke into the school at gunpoint and took the principal hostage as well was not in the documentary. I do not remember that being said at all. They just said that he was able to walk into the school, say, I'm Michael's father, and left with the kid. That's the way I remember the documentary. But please, correct me if I'm wrong. And then she said true to the fact that, um, you know, uh, a lot of the laws didn't protect the children at that point. Uh, okay. So two months later, Floyd was arrested in Louisville, Kentucky. Michael was not with him and had not been seen since. Authorities have received conflicting reports as to what happened to Michael. Some witness statements detailed alleged confessions by Floyd regarding Michael's death. According to these reports, Floyd reportedly told his sister and others that he drowned the child in a motel bathtub in Georgia shortly after the kidnapping. Another person claimed he saw Floyd bury Michael, uh, Michael's body in a cemetery. Still other sources reported that Floyd had stated that Michael was still alive and safe. Although Floyd had ref- has refused to disclose the boy's exact location or who was caring for him, in 2015, an interview with the FBI, it was in the documentary, it said someone found him tied to a tree. He couldn't tell the teacher what was going on because he had a gun on him. Okay. All right, so I must have missed that part. All right, but thank you for clarifying that. Um. 2015 interview with the FBI, Floyd admitted to killing Michael the same day of the kidnapping by shooting him twice in the back of the head. So, you know, here it is, 2022, and they still don't know, unfortunately, where this little boy is. And that, to me, I think is the saddest part. And like I said, it would if they could find him, you know, and they were able to do some kind of DNA testing on him, it would be interesting to know if that Kevin Brown that she was having the affair with actually ended up being Michael's father. That, to me, is the one thing that I think would be able to, you know, answer a lot of questions on this. But like I said, most predators, and uh, I kind of wish I was able to get a hold of my true crime guy, Jeremy, to come on the show with me this week. Most predators that deal in children do not like keeping them around when they become adults. So the fact that this guy went as far as to marry the girl that he abducted is completely out of character. I mean, even in the case of, you know, Ariel Castro, and I know we, we, they're two completely different things, but they're similar in some cases. He had Michelle Knight for 10 years, Lily Rose, as she's known now. He had Gina for close, or actually 12 years for, Lily. He had Gina for 10 years. He had uh, Amanda for almost 11. And he never wanted to marry any of those girls. Or, But, of course, you know, 
if he were to walk out of the house with those girls, he'd have everything. I'm going to have to rewatch because I missed the whole Kevin thing. I was working, so I couldn't watch it. That's fine, Autumn. I mean, you know where to find it. Uh, but thanks for checking out this part of the show. Um, yeah, and that was definitely something that I think that they did leave out, the fact that she was having an affair. And, and like I said, I think I know why. And it was because the girls that she was working with at the strip club, they couldn't tell any, you know, even if they did know, they couldn't say anything because of how often scumbag of, of the universe showed up at the club. Um, you know, but this is... This is so out of character for predators that prey on children. For what this guy did to this woman. And obviously she wound up dead not too long after they ended up getting married anyway. But, you know, it's it's just, it's completely out of character. Which is what I think makes this story so freaking interesting and so different from any other story like this that we've ever heard. And this is why I wanted to do this instead of uh, rehashing Stranger Things. But we will rehash Stranger Things. So you guys get one more week reprieve to try to watch the rest of Stranger Things Season 4. Because next week, since Vecna has taken over the asylum here. And, uh, you know, even my padded room here. You know, it's it's been upside down because of Vecna. And he, he, he's got shit going crazy here. I mean, look at this. Look at this. Nurse Ratchet's disappeared. I, I just got free reign in this place, man. But, I mean, that, that sky is as is, is red as my T-shirt, man. I mean, it's fucking crazy what Vecna's been able to do here. Um, But Suzanne, Sharon, Tanya, all the same person, is not the only person that Franklin Delano Floyd is believed to have killed. Same thing with Michael. And like I said, they found pictures of 16 women who were tortured, raped, and murdered in his vehicle, along with pictures of Sharon, Suzanne, Tanya in his truck in sexually compromising positions as well. So Cheryl Ann Camesso disappeared in 1989, and her disappearance remains unsolved until her skeletal remains were found in 1995 by a landscaper in an area off of... Hey, I'm doing a fucking podcast here. Can you keep your goddamn engine quiet? Fuck. It's a crazy night here in Berea, man. There are people fucking everywhere. Everywhere. And they're walking around with chairs and shit, so I'm thinking there's something going on at Coe Lake. So, we'll, um, more on that later. Uh, but they found her remains uh, off the interstate of 275 in Pinellas County, Florida, where she was listed as a Jane Doe until a year later when the remains were identified. An archaeologist determined that she died from a beating and two gunshots to the head. Floyd and Suzanne Savekis have been persons of interest in the case after co-workers witnessed an altercation between Floyd and Camesso. Floyd accused Camesso of reporting Savekis for misstating her income, which subsequently resulted in Savekis losing her government benefits. 
The argument occurred outside of the club where Savekis and Camesso worked as exotic dancers. A co-worker reported that Floyd punched her in the face. Floyd and Savekis fled to Oklahoma shortly after Camesso disappeared, and their trailer was burned to the ground in what was ruled intentional arson. What, me rude or them rude? Because, yes, that was very rude for them to just blare their goddamn engine when I'm in the middle of talking about a scumbag murdering people. But this is interesting because, you know, maybe that altercation was about And yes, it says we lost internets. Hopefully we didn't lose them. Ah, there we go. Hey, look at that. Uh, I feel so much was left out of the documentary. It could have been a series. I think so too. But I think that there's so much information that maybe people didn't know. Because they, they really only talked to Sharon, Tanya, Suzanne's friends in this documentary. That they didn't really, I don't know if they did a lot of research into Frank. And at the very beginning... I did kind of talk about what I liked and what I didn't like about the documentary. So, you know, when you go back and watch, make sure you pay attention to that as well. And I'll, I'll get into the missing information about Frank uh, after I get through the rest of this um, as well. But, no, I, I don't disagree because when I looked up Frank and I saw all the crap about Frank, I'm like, hmm. But at the same time, I do feel like they were trying to make it more about the victim than they were about the perpetrator, which I definitely think is something that a lot of true crime documentaries get away from, is they they always make it about the monster, but never the victim. So seeing as how they made this one solely about the victim was kind of a breath of fresh air, in my opinion. But... Let's continue on here with the disappearance of Cheryl Ann Camesso. In March of 95, a mechanic in Kansas found a large envelope uh, stuffed between the truck bed and the top of the gas tank of a truck he had recently purchased at an auction. Very, very true. Yes. Like I was saying. Um, He found 97 photographs in the in the envelope, including many photographs of, of a woman who was bound and severely beaten. The police traced the truck back to Floyd, who had stolen the truck in Oklahoma in September of 1994, but had abandoned it in Texas the following month. So, could that be the vehicle that Michael went missing in? Uh, investigators compared the photographs of the injured woman with Camesso as well as the evidence found with her remains and found that the clothing in the photograph were similar. Hmm. The medical examiner also compared injuries seen in the photographs to the cheekbone of Camesso's skull and found that they were consistent. Many of the pictures contained images of furniture and other belongings identified as belonging to Floyd. 
He was tried and convicted for Camesso's murder on the basis of the photographic evidence found in the truck. Given what we talked about with Frank earlier in the show, this matches up. Uh, Further investigation into the disappearance of Michael. Uh, The investigation of the kidnapping of Michael Hughes as well as the earlier kidnappings of his mother are ongoing. Other photos found in the truck show sexual abuse of Savakis starting very early in her childhood. Authorities found photos of her in sexually explicit photos at various ages starting at around age four. So, I'm thinking that my suspicion here was very true and that he planned this. He may not have necessarily planned it to be with her because of the circumstances surrounding how he received her. But given what he has done, what he had done in the past to a girl of the same age, that this was his intention from the start. It just so happened to be happenstance that this girl's mother was in prison at the time when he's sitting here and he's just like, hey, golden fucking opportunity. And he took it. In September of 2014, Floyd admitted to the murder of Michael and that he had disposed of his body on Interstate 35. A search of the area yielded in no results. Police believe that wild hogs may have eaten Michael's body. In 2001, while awaiting trial for Comesso's murder, Judge Nancy Lee ruled that Floyd was incompetent to stand trial and ordered him to undergo further mental evaluation. Floyd fought against this assessment, asserting that he was competent, and several months later, the judge reversed her previous ruling and ordered him to stand trial. He was convicted of first-degree murder, and sentenced to death. Denied. Okay. So, like I said, and like Autumn was saying here, there there is something else that we're going to get into when it comes to this documentary, but I want to kind of talk about some things that Autumn had, had brought up and also that after doing this research, and look at, I mean, this is only five pages. Five pages of research, and I know more about this guy than they revealed in the documentary. But like I said, the documentary was focusing on the victim, which is something that is very, very refreshing when it comes to true crime documentaries. A lot of them focus on the monster, not the victim. And that that is something that I think more true crime documentaries need to do. To me... Some of the best true crime documentaries are ones that look at it from every angle. Not just the perpetrator, not just the victim, but you spend time with the victim. You spend time with the perpetrators. You spend time with the law enforcement people. You spend time with the judges, with the jury after they're able to speak about it. And all of this other things, which is why I think the Paradise Lost trilogy is some of the truest and most unbiased version of true crime documentation that has ever taken place. And Joe Berlinger and Brusinovsky, God rest his soul, have further done that in other films that they have made. Uh, Joe Berlinger did the Cecil Hotel 
documentary that this is also on Netflix about the disappearance of that girl. And he did a very comprehensive look into that. I, I think that if Joe Berlinger had done this, a lot of the information that was missing from this documentary would have been put into it. That is how highly I think of Joe Berlinger as a true two form documentarian. He also did uh, Bruce and Joe also did Metallica, some kind of monster. And when James got out of rehab, he did not want that film being shown, but Joe and Bruce sat down, not just James, but Kirk and Lars and said, here's what we shot. If you guys agree that the film won't be, shouldn't be made, we'll pack up our shit and we'll leave right now. And they watched the film. They saw how real and true and the, the, positive way that Joe and Bruce were showing everything that the band was going through at the time. So they agreed to allow some kind of monster to continue to be made. And I think I know a lot of people hate on it because it makes Metallica look not immortal, but they're human beings and human beings go through different things in life. So even though The film, in some people's eyes, shows Metallica in a very negative light. I think it shows them in the truest and most positive light that it possibly could. Because now you know that these four people that are fucking Rock and Roll Hall of Famers and some of the biggest names in the world of of heavy metal are just as human as you and I. And they go through the same trials and tribulations that every other human being on the planet goes through. That is why I fell in love with documentary filmmaking. And Girl in the Picture is no different. You know, we saw the trailer for it. We heard the one friend that was talking about Sharon. Or maybe it was Suzanne Davis, one of the, one of the many aliases that this woman used in her life. And that looks interesting. Let's watch that. So, you know, we hit play on it and the rest was history from there. And yes, the story does start off very slow and it's only at the very beginning of this. Do they mention Frank and mention who Frank was? Then the rest of it is the journey that Suzanne, Sharon, Tanya, Suzanne, Sharon, Tanya took throughout her very short lived life. And, you know, yes, I do think it's a very big, fresh breath of fresh air that they did keep it very, very true to the victim and that they were telling the victim story and not the perpetrator story. But I think a lot of the story of what happened to this girl would have been a little bit more easily understood and made more sense had they gone through all of this information about Frank's early life and the fact that he had been arrested, convicted, and tried and spent time in prison for doing this exact same thing nearly a decade or so earlier. Actually, not even a decade or so earlier. Let's take a look here. 1962 is when he kidnapped the first girl. And then 1975 is when he kidnapped Suzanne. So, yeah, you know, 13 years. 
I didn't mean to press that. But I mean, still, I mean, that sound is actually kind of apropos because, you know, it's like if, if anybody, you know, and obviously I, I think I understand what the filmmaker was trying to do here. They, they were trying to tell the story of this missing girl and not tell the story of Frank. But you can't tell the story of her without mentioning all the things that Frank did. So I'm going to have to get my hands on this. But that was that was the one thing that I think was very lacking from the documentary is the fact that they didn't go through the other convictions of things that Frank had done before he kidnapped this woman or the fact that they, I don't even think that they, they mentioned that his real name was Frank Delano Floyd, Franklin Delano Floyd, Floyd. And you know, gee, Franklin Delano, you know, are they, were his parents really big fans of FDR? I mean, I'm not making that up. That's his name. Franklin Delano Floyd. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I think that they were trying to say something here. They probably had very big aspirations for this kid, but fucked him in life. You know, how many times has that happened with people? But given the light, and I'm not making excuses for Frank, so please don't think that I am. If you think that I'm trying to glorify a fucking scumbag, then turn this fucking show off right now and never watch it again. I don't need your views. Trust me. But just given what I've learned and what I've studied when it comes to scumbags of the universe... Everything that this kid went through prior to his conviction in 1960 is exactly what you find in 99.999% of these cases when it comes to scumbags of the universe. It's also a very similar story to what Rob Zombie gave to Michael Myers. But what I do find very interesting about this whole thing and how in just a few short years after all of, you know, the Steven Stainer incident and then this and then, you know, several other incidents that have happened since then, you know, people like him were able to continuously perpetrate. It was the same thing with the Steven Stainer case because there were no laws in place at the time that people like this needed to register and announce their presence. And I'm not saying that the registration is perfect because obviously it's not. And I've seen so many circumstances where it isn't. But it's these kinds of things that probably caused those laws to be put into place. And I do find it very interesting that nobody recognized this little girl, but of course... You know, the mother wasn't allowed to to put out a missing persons report, wasn't allowed to announce her children missing. She wasn't even allowed to get her kids back 
from the child care facilities or the private adoption that took place after she was released from prison because child services declared her unfit because of her conviction for writing a bad check. Writing a bad check? I mean, that's something that I think probably could have been forgiven. Considering the fact that if you look at certain cases that are happening in today times where parents are allowed to get multiple, 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 multiple drug convictions and still able to keep their children. Multiple prostitution convictions and being able to keep their children. But on top of that, being able to make more kids on fucking top of it. And yes, you know, you know, I know a lot of that is a very hot button topic right now. And trust me, the asylum will tackle that bullshit when I feel it is appropriate. But right now, I don't feel it is. But I just find it so weird that shit like this was able to happen. And and the fact that I, that they just did the, the Steven Stainer documentary a few months ago, and then this one comes out. That's the kind of thing that I find very interesting. But if you guys have not checked out Girl in the Picture, it is available to stream right now on the Netflix, and it is a very good watch. Or if you guys want to do a little bit more research into the case, there is a book that I found in my research that I didn't know about, and they don't even mention it in the documentary. Bad, bad form. Bad form by the documentary filmmakers on that one. Um, The book is called A Beautiful Child. It is by investigative journalist Matt Birkbeck, and it was published in 2004. It brought the Franklin Floyd and Sharon Marshall story to light and led to the discovery of the daughter given up for adoption in 1989. Worldwide interest in finding Sharon's true identity generated by the book eventually led the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the FBI to revive the case in 2011. In 2014, two FBI agents interviewed Franklin Floyd, and he confessed to killing Michael Hughes and divulged Sharon's true identity, which was Suzanne Savekis. And then not too long after that, they were able to actually get Suzanne and her daughter Megan reunited through 23andMe, uh, FamilyTree.com, one of those DNA testing websites. They were able to put the two of them back, you know, well, they, they didn't reunite them physically, obviously, because Sharon, uh, Sharon, Suzanne, Tanya is dead. But they were at least able to match Megan to her, and she knew her real mother and what happened to her. And something else that Autumn brought up, um, you know, about her mom being weird. And, that, that you know, I did mention a lot of the, the things that didn't protect the children during that time and all of that. But, um, you know, because they did talk to the birth father a little bit as well. And, you know, even he tried tried to help. And, and he even said that he didn't feel like she did enough. And even some of the other people that knew you know, knew of Sharon and then Suzanne with the different last name and everything. It said that they felt like maybe the mother could have done more. 
and that maybe a lot of the things that happened and that Suzanne might even still be alive. But the fact of the matter is, and while I don't disagree with some of it, the fact of the matter is that she did what she was allowed to do legally by law. And if she had tried doing anything else, you know, she probably could have gotten in more trouble as well. And I, and I did mention that I do think it's wrong that she was never able to get her kids back, the, the other three. You know, and, and the, the kid was in a sealed adoption because of wherever he was left or whatever. You know, and he didn't even know his true identity until 2020. So, I mean, she's still alive. The mother is still alive because they interviewed her after they finally revealed everything. And... So, I mean, you go through this entire documentary until the last 15 minutes not even knowing who this woman's real name is because at first you're like, okay, so her name is Suzanne Davis. And then this woman, Sharon, disappeared and, and you know, these things happened. And then Tanya, and then, then you find out that all three of these people are the same person So they keep you captivated. They, they, they kept you captivated in a very interesting way. Um, you know, and then some of the other things that have, that have happened in her story. Uh, Unsolved Mystery aired a, a segment on Floyd Savakis and Hughes in 1995. Less than two years later, the suspect was formally charged in the murder of Cheryl Camesso. Um, cold case files detailed the case during their initial run. Secrets of the Morgue included the case on the episode of Dance with the Devil, primarily detailing the murder of Camezzo. And then obviously Girl in the Picture detailed the case. Um, there was a follow-up to the book, A Beautiful Child. I believe it was... Uh, I'd have to look it up. I don't know if I have the name of it here. Yeah, it looks like every all the information I have here just mentions uh, a beautiful child. But I know that there was a follow-up book. I'll look it up here in just a second. Um, but, yeah, I mean, so this documentary was very well done. Very, very well done. And, you know... Uh, like you know, like I was saying, you don't see very many that were done in the eyes of the victim, but this one was. And um, you know, I had to do all the information. Finding Sharon, that's the follow-up to the book, and it was also written by Matt Burkebeck as well. Um. So um, that is, both of these books are now available. There is an audio book 
of A Beautiful Child that is available through audiobooks now and probably also available on Audible um, if you guys want to look it up. And they even say it's the inspiration behind the Netflix documentary Girl in the Pictures. So, um, Money's Crazy Soundtrack. Obviously, Money's Crazy Soundtrack did not happen this week or last week um, due to everything that uh, had been going on with uh, my family situation. Um, You know, we didn't get the news until Friday morning about what had happened to uh, my wife's cousin. But Thursday night, I just had this weird feeling that something was wrong. And I was getting ready to hop on, and I was getting ready to, to, to do Money's Crazy Soundtrack, which would have been part two of Metallica. And I just, I'm just like, I, you know, something's, something's not right. You know, I didn't, I didn't know if it was with me or if it was just something that I felt just wasn't right in the universe. And I decided not to do it. Um, and then I didn't do it yesterday because, you know, we were dealing with the family stuff and everything, and... Um, wanted to be there for my wife um, with the death of her young cousin and all of that. So Money's Crazy Soundtrack is going to air at a very special time. It'll air this Sunday from 2 to 4 p.m. Yes, no, 3 to 5, I'm sorry. It'll be 3 to 5 p.m., oops. Uh, And then it'll go, then you'll get right into uh, Kevin Kwan, Professional Unprofessionals. And then immediately following that will be the, well, the season premiere of the Steel City Renegades. We'll be talking all about the name change that happened at Heinz Field this week. Um, You know, the, the information that Mike Tomlin released today regarding the starting quarterback situation and everything else going on in the world of the Pittsburgh Steelers um, but yes, Money's Crazy Soundtrack will be back this Sunday, 3 to 5 p.m. Don't miss out. Uh, we will, uh, like I said, we'll, we'll get into everything uh, involving the Steelers and all of that and get you guys everything that you need to know. So let's jump into this real quick. If you guys want to check out the replay of Money's Crazy Mind, you can do that on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Twitch. Just search Redline Radio LLC and you'll be able to find the video replay of Money's Crazy Mind. Or if you guys want to plug it into your little ear holes and listen to it that way, every episode of Money's Crazy Mind is available through Anchor, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, CastBox, Amazon Podcasts. Radio Public, and Spotify. Uh, I will make sure that the podcast goes up this week. I think last week's episode still needs to be loaded up, so I'm a little bit behind on that, but that's some shit going on. Also, um, we do the exclusive post-show wrap-up every Friday night at 10.15. There will not be one for this episode tonight, but I will get it up this weekend. And if you guys want to check out the official website for Money's Crazy Mind, it is powered by PodPage. Just go to podpage.com forward slash money's dash crazy dash mind. All of the episodes are up there. A link to the YouTube, or I'm sorry, a link to the 
Facebook page for Money's Crazy Mind is available on there as well. And speaking of the, the Facebook page, you can go to Facebook and go to Money's Crazy Mind. Make sure you put a dollar sign as the S and you will find Money's Crazy Mind podcast. I'm sorry. And you will find all the information about Money's Crazy Mind there. Just quick shout out to some of our sponsors here. At Redline Radio LLC, I did not forget about any of you. Do not think I ever will. So we have a brand new sponsor here at Redline Radio. I don't have a graphic forum up yet because obviously I didn't do my show last week. Uh, but, you know, we we are so proud to have this new sponsor on board. Let me pull up his information here. All Access Realty. Reach out to Frank at All Access Realty, and he will get you hooked up, be it residential, commercial, anything like that. Community competence and connection is what they strive for. So you can go to their website or just Google them, All Access Realty. Ask for Frank, and he will get you all hooked up. Uh, and as we mentioned throughout the show, obviously, incredible keepsakes, awesome job on the Money's Crazy Mind t-shirts. I love them. Every time I walk out in public with it, somebody's got to ask me, what, why is my face <laughs> on my t-shirt? No, I am not a narcissist. Uh, I am promoting a podcast, and then I give them all the information, and I tell them where they can get those awesome Money's Crazy Mind t-shirts. So huge shout out to incredible keepsakes no crazy shit you find on the internet this week but that doesn't mean that i don't like uh still love riley over at tattoo therapy inc money's crazy mind and redline radio llc is proudly sponsored by tattoo therapy inc in the greenbrier shopping center at 6259 pearl road parma heights ohio you can contact riley today at 440-747-7130 they are one of the premier tattoo parlors in Northeast Ohio. And don't forget to tell them that Red Line Radio sent you. And don't forget, if you reach out to Riley and go to, to Tattoo Therapy, Inc. or find Riley Chase Tattoos on Facebook, they are running a raffle right now that can get you an all-day tattoo session valued at over $600 for free if you join that raffle. But that is going to do it this week for Money's Crazy Mind. Thank you, everybody that jumped into the asylum this week. I promise I'm going to try to see if I can get 11 to come here and kick Vecna's ass to get rid of these ugly red clouds and all this fucking lightning and shit. And my dollar signs, man. They used to be a pretty gold. Now they're all tarnished and shit. I mean, Nurse Ratchet's office is all fucked up and black and white and crap. I mean, I hate being in the upside down. Bring me back to reality. But... That's going to do it for Money's Crazy Mind this week. Thank you, everybody, for checking out the show. I definitely appreciate all of y'all. We'll be back next week, and maybe me telling everybody what happened to Vecna's crazy ass will get this shit out of the asylum. We will talk all about Stranger Things Season 4 next week. And let me just show you something here, guys. This is all the research that I did for today's episode. But... Last week's episode obviously did not happen due to the death in the family, but here's all the information I have for that. So, I'm prepared, like I like to be. But that's going to do it, everybody, this week. Until next week, have a week.
Tommy's Crazy Mind is a proud Redline Media Group and nameless, faceless production. That's all, folks.